Law of Self-Defense content you are about to enjoy is presented for general educational purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice. If you are in need of legal advice, consult competent legal counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Welcome to our ongoing coverage of the Minnesota murder trial of Derek Chauvin over the in-custody death of George Floyd. I'm attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense, providing guest commentary and analysis of this trial for legal insurrection. As a reminder, I am live parlouring the trial in real time over at my parlor account, which you can find using my parlor handle at Law of Self Defense, no spaces at Law of Self Defense. Well, today the court moved through six prospective jurors. Uh, two of these essentially took themselves out of the running immediately when they professed exceptional difficulties in being able to serve without hardship. That would be number 46, or claiming both hardship and firmly established opinions against the defendant Chauvin, that would be number 49. Prospective juror number 43 was also excused for some unexplained reason, presumably for cause, and was never questioned on open microphone. Another two prospective jurors were removed by peremptory strikes with the defense burning a challenge on number 42 and the state burning a challenge on number 48. More on those two in a moment. Prospective juror number 44, however, was satisfactory to both the defense and the state and was seated as the seventh member of the jury. More on her in a moment as well. Let's talk first about juror number 42, which was stricken by the defense. She was the first prospective juror um, questioned today. Prospective juror number 42 was a young-sounding female, a recent college graduate who described herself as a genuine person who looks for true friendship. When asked by the defense if she'd ever in her personal or professional life been in a position where she had to resolve which of two sides in an argument was more likely telling the truth, she said she never had been, which seemed odd for an adult to say. When asked by the defense about evidence that might appear very clear, number 42 indicated that she would give very clear evidence, such as a video in particular, more weight than she would witness testimony. Asked by the defense if she'd ever had the experience of believing she was 100% right about something only to learn later that she'd been mistaken, number 42 said she'd never had such an experience. Once again, this seemed odd for an adult to say. I would expect we've all had that experience. Certainly those of us who have been married have had that experience, but regardless. When asked if she would be able to apply the law as instructed, even if she thought the law was wrong, Number 42 claimed that she would. Well, so far, so good. But as we've seen before, the wheels began to come off number 42 when the defense turned to her juror questionnaire. When asked her opinion of Chauvin in the questionnaire, she had responded somewhat negative, which is not too concerning for the defense. But then she wrote out, chose this option, this response, because it went on so long, meaning Chauvin's knee on Floyd's neck. Asked to explain this in court today, number 42 told the defense, from what I saw as a human, it did not give me a good impression. The human reference would have been particularly alarming to the defense as one must presume number 42 would never view the video as a non-human. As the defense explored number 42's perception of the video further, she agreed that it was her perception 
that Chauvin had treated Floyd in a manner that was inhumane. That's a quote. Juror number 42 also had an inflexible belief in the need for quote-unquote police reform. She also testified to having participated in a Black Lives Matter march. In exploring her views that blacks and other minorities do not receive equal treatment as whites in the criminal justice system, she based this belief on, quote, what was shown in the world this past year, close quote, also suggesting inflexibility on that issue. She also testified that she had friends who had been mistreated by the police, but only friends who were people of color, which I took to indicate that she believed that the police mistreatment was racially based. Perhaps most alarming about number 42, however, was her apparent belief that her service on the jury would be a mission in pursuit of some greater good. In her juror questionnaire, when asked if she wanted to serve on the jury, she responded that she did, yes, and added, writing out, quote, I am a recent college grad, and I believe there's a reason for everything. This is a global case, and it's important to put everything aside and be present for this trial, close quote. When pressed by the defense, number 42 insisted that she could be a fair and impartial juror on the case, compelling the defense to burn an eighth peremptory strike to remove her. This leaves the defense with seven remaining peremptory strikes. So I've embedded the complete voir dire of number 42 in the text version of today's content. Uh, keep in mind, as always, that if there are dead spots or sidebars, um, where there's no audio in the recording, I've cut that out just for purposes of efficiency of watching the video or listening to the audio. But otherwise, uh, the recordings are the entirety of the voir dire for each particular prospective juror. Now let's take a look at juror number 48. This was a bit later in the day. Uh, and number 48 would be stricken by the state. Prospective juror 48 was a male who had previously served eight years in the Army Reserve in a maintenance company and who had, at one point, been deployed to Iraq as a sergeant in E-5. He's currently in a management position, working with a diverse set of colleagues. He describes himself as easygoing, with a good sense of humor, and a wife and small kids at home. When asked by the defense if he'd ever had to resolve disputes between others, he indicated that he had, and that his process was to understand where both sides were coming from, use his experience, and gather additional sources of information on the issues in dispute. Uh, in other words, essentially the job description of a juror. When asked by the defense if the community had been negatively or positively affected by the events around Floyd's death, number 48 indicated that he thought both were true. He did distinguish between peaceful protests and rioting, but noted that they often seem to blend into each other because violent people take advantage of the opportunity offered by the peaceful protest. Asked by the defense if he thought blacks and whites were treated differently by the criminal justice system, Number 48 somewhat disagreed based on his own personal experience. Asked by the defense if police in his community made him feel safe, he somewhat agreed, indicating that the police do make him feel safe and that he had no concerns about police. Asked his opinion on demands to defund the Minneapolis Police Department, he somewhat disagreed and explained he didn't really know what that policy actually sought, and also that people advocating for that policy themselves don't appear to fully understand the ramifications. 
Asked by the defense if, because of their dangerous jobs, police officer decisions on duty ought not be second-guessed, he wrote in his questionnaire that he somewhat agreed. He explained that what he meant was that, based on his own personal training experience in the military, he imagined that police training and practices might involve conduct that looked very negative to untrained observers, but which might be perfectly normal. He did, however, acknowledge that sometimes police did need to be questioned. When asked on the questionnaire whether he wanted to be a juror on this case, he indicated that he was unsure, primarily out of concern for publicity and possible safety of himself and his family. That remains true today, he said, although he was fully willing to serve on the jury if chosen. Ultimately, the defense passed for cause, meaning the defense found number 48 to be an acceptable juror. At that point, Prosecutor Schleider took over questioning of number 48 for the state. Schleider seemed particularly concerned about 48's awareness that untrained observers might negatively misinterpret conduct by trained persons, as well as that being informed about that training might be necessary for that observer to properly understand what they had seen. Schleider was also concerned by number 48's description of the Floyd video as, quote, very quick and stressful, as well as 48's belief that he would need more context about what led up to the event in order to have an informed opinion. Number 48 had also indicated that one of the factors increasing the stress of the situation for the officers involved was the crowd that grew at the event and their shouting at the officers. This would be a particular sore point with Prosecutor Schleider because the state will certainly call some of that crowd as witnesses, and they would not want a juror who believed that those witnesses had actually contributed negatively to the event. In any case, all of that was enough for Prosecutor Schleider, who, uh, who used a peremptory strike to remove number 48 from the jury pool, and this leaves the state with four remaining peremptory strikes. And again, we have embedded the voir dire of number 48 in the text version of today's content. And that brings us to juror number 44, uh, who ultimately would be impaneled as the seventh member of the jury for this case. The voir dire of prospective juror 44 actually took place prior to that of 48, as the numerical sequence suggests. And she was questioned by the defense prior to lunch and by the state immediately after lunch. Prospective juror number 44 was a woman who was described as a C-level executive working in a healthcare-related nonprofit and who saw her mission as improving her community's healthcare uh, and the life of others generally. In that role, she'd apparently had previous contact with Attorney General Ellison, uh, although nobody appeared to see any reason why this should disqualify her as a juror. She's also the single mother of two teenagers in high school. Asked by the defense about her initial reaction to knowing she was a potential juror on this case, the Chauvin case, over the George Floyd in-custody death, she responded that she was, quote, kind of terrified, uh, given the high profile of the case. She expressed that she was not so much worried about physical safety as about the possibility of harassment, given how high emotions are running in this case. She also noted that anyone who claimed they weren't worried about this possibility was lying. In many respects, number 44 seemed well-suited as a juror on this case from a 
thought process perspective. She described herself as analytical. She acknowledged the importance of knowing both sides to any dispute, gathering additional information when available, and recognized that it was normal for people to have different views of the same matter. She also acknowledged that she had to arrive at a verdict based on the evidence shown in court and not what she might have learned elsewhere. Remarkably, she several times referenced her belief that the media was biased generally. Prospective juror number 44 also acknowledged that while what she saw of the video of Floyd's death created a negative impression for her of Chauvin, she was aware that she doesn't know the laws and procedures for police detaining a suspect. She noted also that Floyd dying was surely not the intended endpoint for police procedures and also expressed a belief that none of the officers involved in this event went into it planning that Floyd would die. She also noted that the police in her community contributed to her safety and appeared to have no negative perceptions of the police generally. However, she also had definite opinions on systemic discrimination and racism. Asked if media exaggerated discrimination, she believed it did, but also expressed a belief that blacks and Native Americans have been disenfranchised by outdated laws and policies, although she put this down primarily to a consequence of implicit rather than explicit discrimination. Interestingly, number 44 mentioned Native Americans multiple times and at one point used the racial term of art BIPOC, B-I-P-O-C, which I understand to mean black and indigenous people of color. Ultimately, regardless, the defense passed on cause for number 44, meaning they found her acceptable as a juror. Prosecutor Slider once again handled the voir dire for the state. When he explored 44's slight disagreement with defunding the Minneapolis Police Department, she reaffirmed her position that the police helped her feel safe. She also seemed to have a genuinely open mind on the question of whether Chauvin and the other officers involved in Floyd's arrest were acting with malice. Indeed, she presumed that they were not acting with malice. She also indicated that she would have a generally lower opinion of a person if she learned they used illegal drugs, mostly because doing so was, in her view, a poor life decision. But despite these views, Schleider also passed on cause, meaning the state found number 44 acceptable as a juror. And as a result, number 44 became the seventh juror seated on this case. And again, I've embedded the voir dire of number 44 in the text version of today's content. Okay, folks, that's all I have for all of you today. And for the weekend, uh, we'll be back to our live coverage of Minnesota v. Chauvin. When court resumes again with jury selection on Monday at 9 a.m. Central Time. Until then, I'm attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense and guest commenting for Legal Insurrection. Stay safe.